This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. I think just to touch on one point that you mentioned where, you know, trying to borrow on their website where they're saying, this is built for you. I think that is one of those things in fintech that we are desperately missing is this uh, and financial services writ large, but this empathetic approach where it's like, don't be ashamed. Come to us. You know, it's all confusing. I'm confused. You're confused. We want you to calculate an APR over here. Like, what is a representative example? I don't know either. Why can't we all kind of build products with that customer empathy in mind? And I think a lot of fintech products are unfortunately missing the mark still. So it is always great to give a round of applause to those who are putting in the work. But I think that can be a common thread amongst this conversation for me. Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Takes. We have a very special episode today. Uh, This is a guest episode with a super special guest. She is the founder of Bloom Money. She was recently named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, a list that I could not possibly make for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I'm now super old. She has experiences working at financial technology companies, both big and small, my friend and someone I lean on constantly for dumb fintech questions, Nina Mohanty. Nina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so, so much for having me, Alex. I feel, and we've discussed already, like I'm not qualified to be here, but thank you for having me. Oh, of course. No, you are very qualified to be here. And candidly, over the last couple of weeks, with all of the people who have been opining on banking and fintech-related topics with literally no qualifications. I actually really appreciate people who still have a feeling of imposter syndrome. I certainly do whenever I do any fintech-related stuff, just because I think you and I have both had the experience of diving into areas and just realizing how little we actually know about all of this stuff. And a healthy imposter syndrome is a, a good thing to continue to cultivate. So no, I very much appreciate you being here. And specifically, I wanted to have you on the podcast because one of the things that I constantly harp on in the newsletter and want to just never lose sight of and was hoping to kind of cover on a podcast as well is this idea that within fintech, particularly over the last, I would say, five years, as fintech has become very popular and a ton of VC money has poured into the space, that we tend to be sort of narrowly focused on the problems that we're trying to solve. And I think this is due to a number of different factors, right? A lot of times from a VC perspective, once you see a successful archetype, you know, oh, hey, consumer neobank like Chime, well, we need to have one of those. And so you sort of build your like bingo card of like, we need a neobank, we need a buy now, pay later company, we need a revenue-based financing company, blah, blah, blah. And everyone just sort of piles into the space. And so instead of ending up with a diversity of different fintech companies solving different problems, we end up with five, six, seven, nine, twelve fintech companies that are all kind of carbon copies of each other, all sort of solving the same problem. I also have noticed, and I think you and I have even talked about this in the past, that again, maybe tracing back to who's writing the checks in this space, there's a natural sort of bias built into problems that people who are building in the space and who are cutting checks to people building in the space understand. And I have certainly harped on the fact that, you know, the number of fintech companies we have for tech company founders is sort of outrageous, right? Like, 
oh my God, it's just the worst thing ever that, you know, an early, you know, tech startup founder can't get a mortgage because the bank that they go to doesn't understand the equity that they have and values that as collateral. And so they can't buy a $2.5 million house in uh, the Bay Area. Like this is a tragedy and a problem that we have to solve. And then not that it's not a problem, right? R.I.P. Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, oh, God. Soon. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I mean, that's that's what it is, right? Like, I, I joked in my newsletter that Silicon Valley Bank was like a fintech company masquerading as a bank, right? Like, they were a really good example of, hey, let's just serve this little community. VCs will love us. Like, there's no better way to get a big check from one of the, the big name VC firms than go, we're going to make it better for tech company founders. That's the financial services challenge that we're focused on solving. However, that I think ignores, in my mind, the purpose of what we're trying to do in fintech, which I define as trying to broaden the scope of problems that financial services can address in the lives of people and companies. And what that requires is us to look well outside of the traditional areas both that banks have worked in, right? Because a lot of times what we do in fintech is we just sort of come in and say, we're going to invent a better version of this bank product that's already existed, not maybe taking into consideration the fact that there's lots of stuff that banks historically have not done, as well as trying to get away from the echo chambers that a lot of fintech is still trapped in, which is New York, London, you know, San Francisco. Like These are places where it's really easy to solve problems that you see, but a lot of the biggest problems in the world are happening outside of those areas. I live in Montana. Obviously, there's just a whole bunch of problems well outside of those ecosystems that are, are also in need of solving. And you know, the last thing that I'll say on this before we dive into kind of what we want to talk about is a few years ago, I did a survey, a consumer survey, where we tried to sort of uncover what some of these unmet needs are in financial services. And so we specifically designed the survey to ask consumers not about bank products or not about the sort of traditional language that we use when we describe financial services. So we were very like vague and very sort of open-ended. And one of the questions that we asked was, what is crucial to the future of your financial success? And we just left it as an open-ended question. So people could respond however they wanted with that, right? You didn't have to choose off of a list of, of choices. And we got a huge diversity of really interesting responses. But what was fascinating was only 1% of responses said something about the person's bank or mentioned the word bank. And the other 99% of responses were other things that were about problems that consumers don't really think banks can even solve or are trying to solve. Right but are things that really are crucial to their financial future. And so, Nina, what I'm hoping to do with you is just bounce around a couple different areas. I know you have this sort of same lens on fintech and just talk about what are some of the unsolved problem areas within fintech, within financial services that you would like to see more focus on and that you think are worthy of more investment and more sort of building. Does that sound like a plan? Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. So as the guest, I'm going to let you go first. So like, Nina, what is your first area of sort of unsolved problems within fintech or financial services? Right. So I'm going to come out the gate swinging. Yes, I love it. And the area that I have really struggled with personally yep. and often come across daily is being, quote, credit invisible. And so, you know, in the UK, 
there's 5 million folks. These are stats from Experian. There's 5 million adults that are considered credit invisible. That's about 13% of the adult population. In the U.S., I think it's estimated end of last year, it was about 28 million adults that are credit invisible. And I think this is a really interesting, complex problem because credit invisible is such a broad term, but encompasses so many different people. Yeah. And a hot take, I mean, this is fintech takes, there are so many, quote, credit builder products that are really great, but they are very much focused on people who already have an existing file, right? So at one of the bureaus, they're already, they've got a file, they've got their name on it, their address, everything, boom, 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 fine. Yep. And actually, to be fair, that data is probably incorrect to a certain degree and oftentimes is. Yeah. But I'm talking about the people who really, we just have no idea. We've, you know, they're not paying a utility bill. They're not taking out a credit card. Well, they're completely new to the country and they don't have a bank account. And so I was actually thinking about this the other day through the lens of my mother-in-law, who is in her 60s. Yep. And she had a brief stint working as a farm secretary in Yorkshire. And then she raised my partner and his brothers. Yep. And so she never, you know, was collecting a paycheck and as far as I know, was, you know, using funds that was given from her husband's income to buy things for the household, for whatever. And I remember we had this conversation because we were talking about credit and access to credit. Sure. And she was saying when she first went to try and apply for a credit card, it was just computers as no, because she doesn't exist. Right. And I think often about the fact that people think when we talk about credit invisible that we're talking about, especially when I talk about it, that we're talking about immigrants, that people that are new to this country, people who are undocumented, whatever. I'm talking about, you know, middle-aged Yorkshire lady, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so there's like a whole range of people that fall under this category of credit invisible who actually probably are able to repay credit in some way, but we just don't know how to ascribe that to them. I don't know if that's the right verb to use. To We don't know how to assess their credit worthiness. And I think, again, most of the times we talk about credit builders. I know, you know, Chime, Dave, we're really big in the States for that. In the UK, we've got Lockbox, we've got Pocket, we've got so many credit built. Bits is a YC company. And they're very much focused on people who are banked, who definitely have a file, who already have a score. And what I want to understand is how do we capture everyone? I love this. So you couldn't have picked a better topic for me. I'm I'm incredibly passionate and interested in credit invisibility. I obviously have come out of the sort of credit space in my past. And so I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I think you nailed it, right? I mean, The problem with credit invisibility is it's not one population, it's a dozen different populations jammed together under one tent. And one solution is not going to work for all of those consumer populations, right? Because to your point, you have, I mean, just think about like all of these different archetypes. You have a 18-year-old who obviously has never contractually been able to have a credit account in their name before, and they are coming into the market with probably not a great understanding of how the credit system works. I actually, my first job, I created a 
credit education program and taught it at a bunch of local high schools and middle schools. And um, you'd be surprised. So on brand. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of the blind leading the blind to a degree. But I did my best to sort of uh, give them a little bit of information. And it was interesting because they just had no clue, right? I mean, most kids, you know, as they grow up, just don't get exposed to how these systems work. And you know, that's totally understandable, right? Most adults don't really quite know how the system works. It just, they kind of muddle through and they can't teach their kids. So, you know, an 18-year-old who's starting out, well, what are they going to do? Well, you know, for them, probably buy now, pay later is an entry point into credit now that didn't used to exist. And that's interesting, right? So like, I mean, and you've worked in this space, you know it very well. Um, there's a lot of virtues, I think, to, to buy now, pay later. It's generally very accessible to people who don't have a credit history. They don't tend to rely on scores as much as like a credit card issuer others do. Obviously, it's very targeted at younger consumers, e-commerce purchases. So I think today it's an entry point into the credit system, except that, as we know, most of the buy now, pay later companies, for the most part, don't report payments to the credit bureaus, and they haven't historically. Now, that might be changing, but you know there are some tricks to that, right? And I've written about this in my newsletter before. It's very difficult to figure out well, how does buy now, pay later data, which is a little different, how does it fit into a traditional credit file? Is it a revolving account? Is it an installment account? If you add it in there, how is it going to screw up that data? So that's like one example of one population where we have this tool that could potentially act as an on-ramp into the credit system, but it doesn't work very well right now. And I was actually speaking to a guy who worked within the belly of the beast at Experian. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the case in the States, but certainly in the UK. Yeah. And he was actually mentioning, you know, following the Willard Review in the UK, which was very pivotal for the buy now, pay later folks here in the UK. There was this consensus that actually we need to figure out where we need to start sharing data so that we can start figuring out how many lines of credit, because that's effectively what it is, yeah. do people have open? Because just because you're using Klarna, you know, and you've maxed out your credit limit or your, quote, spending limit, right? Yep. Doesn't mean that you're not also you spending with layby or clear pay or in the States, after pay a firm, whatever. Yeah. But he actually said to me that within the bureaus, they don't know, as you said, how do you fit that in? And in the case of Experian, what is the keys category, the CAIS keys category, or at Equifax, the insight category that it's going to sit under. And so actually they're crowbarring it in and they've used an old store card category currently in the UK to try and say, right, well, let's just use that and kind of like cobble it together right? so that we don't have to create a whole new data entry yeah. to be a new keys category. And so, I mean, if buy now, pay later, which is processing billions of, you know, total volume each year can't move the dial within the bureaus. Like, I don't really know what can. Absolutely. Right. So that's a good example. Right. And I think that, you know, it speaks to the root of the challenge here, which is the credit bureaus are the ones that ultimately sort of are, you know, to use the on-ramp analogy, like they're the ones maintaining the highway. Right. And so you can want to build an on-ramp, but if it doesn't work with the way that the credit bureaus work, it's not going to work well. And so buy now, pay later is an example of that. The credit builder cards, as you talked about, is another example of that. I think those are also targeted at younger consumers, people who are earlier in their credit journey. To your point, a lot of them already have some form of credit and they're trying to improve their credit score. I've written about in my newsletter that while they are very customer-friendly product design, which I like, and is you know definitely an improvement on the way that banks used to treat sort of credit-invisible consumers, which was 
okay, if you really bother us, we'll give you this secured credit card, but we think you're a loser and you should really just go away. Like that was the like way those products were designed and marketed, right? Exactly. Was like, I mean, and, and, and I think that's important, right? I mean, when you look at a bank's website and it's so clear on the website that like, oh my God, the last product on this list of credit cards is this secured card. And if I read between the lines and consumers aren't stupid, they can basically tell you're a loser if you get this card. We don't really care about you. We don't want you to have this card. We don't want your business. And you're going to have to pay this big deposit up front in order to even access this card, which if you're lower income, that big deposit is actually going to be a huge portion of what you're trying to save or to use as part of your cash flow. That's not really a very customer-friendly product design. So I give Chime and Varo and others that have built products in this area you know, a round of applause for building a more customer-friendly product where when you go to their websites, it's clear, we don't think you're a loser. This is a really hard problem to solve. We get that you don't understand this. We built this for you. This is for you. That's great. The downside, and it relates to the credit bureaus, is they have sort of hacked their way into the credit bureaus, right? Because the data that they are reporting to the credit bureaus is not an accurate reflection of someone's true credit worthiness. And I've spoken to multiple lenders who have told me we have actually had to adjust our credit underwriting to discount trade lines from those companies that have these credit builder cards, specifically because they are inflating consumers' credit scores more than they should be, right? And so, again, it goes back to the bureaus. Because there's no easy way to sort of solve this and interface with the bureaus, it gets really, really difficult to build a product that's both consumer-friendly and is going to accurately report good signals to the bureaus. So it, it gets back to the same problem. Absolutely. I think just to touch on one point that you mentioned where, yeah. you know, trying to borrow on their website where they're saying, this is built for you. Yes. I think that is one of those things in fintech that we are desperately missing. Yeah. Is this, and financial services writ large, but this empathetic approach where it's like, don't be ashamed. Totally. Come to us. You know, it's all confusing. I'm confused. You're confused. 100%. We want you to calculate an APR over here. Like, what is a representative example? I don't know either. Sure. Why can't we all kind of build products with that customer empathy in mind? And I think a lot of fintech products are unfortunately missing the mark still. So it is always great to give a round of applause to those who are putting in the work. But I think that's going to be a common thread amongst this conversation for me. I totally agree. And I, the only thing I'll add to that just to round out this topic and then we can jump to the next one is I do think there are non-consumer facing ways to also address this problem. So another shout out that I'll give on this topic is to Nova Credit. And, you know, they've been doing a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes to build infrastructure. And the basic idea is they are going to create all of the legal compliance and technology infrastructure necessary to essentially build bridges between credit bureaus in different countries, right? And so you mentioned immigrants as a huge portion of the population of credit invisible consumers. You move to the UK, you move to the US, you might have a established credit history or a history of borrowing money in whatever country you're moving from. However, there's no way to port that information over, right? And so when you move to the US, you're starting over brand new with Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, even though the credit bureau in your home country that you're coming from might already have a history of you having real positive repayment data. 
That's a subsection of this credit and visibility problem, really hard to solve, but Nova has actually solved it by allowing those consumers to basically passport over their credit data from another country. And it's really challenging because, you know, if you've never worked at a credit bureau or at FICO or in, in any of this like infrastructure world, all of the bureaus store their data in different formats, right? And so there's a huge lift to normalize that data, to transform it, and to make it easily consumable within the scores and decisioning algorithms that lenders in the US or the UK or these other countries that Nova has expanded into so that it's just push button easy for them. But now that they've done that work and it's taken them years to do it, now it's easy for someone like American Express, who uses Nova, to have immigrants come to their website and when they see, you know, hey, we weren't able to find your credit score, your credit file at the bureaus, would it be at one of these other credit bureaus in another country? You can click that, you can connect to that account, and you can port your data over and get approved. So you're not starting from zero. So I think, again, it goes back to this core idea of, A, there's a whole bunch of different populations within this credit and visibility bucket, and you have to very narrowly focus on the one you're going to solve for, and B, you have to start with the end in mind. You have to start with how does the credit bureau work and how can we interface with that infrastructure in a way that doesn't break anything and that actually helps the population that we're trying to solve for. So shout out to Nova as well. No, I mean, it's a Herculean task. So yeah, shout out to, well, I know Nikki personally, but you know the entire team. I feel like we're giving awards. <laughs> I kind of, we kind of are. We kind of are, right? So let me- Keep it up. You're doing great, sweetie. <laughs> That's exactly right. So so let me give you one of my problems, and then you tell me if there's any uh, fintech companies or others you want to give awards to on this. So yes. this goes back to that survey that I mentioned before where we asked consumers, what's critical to your financial future, right? And what are the problems that you have with financial services? And I, the number one problem that people had, and I thought this was fascinating, was I don't know if I'm on track financially because of what I see from others and what they're doing with their money. And so the finger that they put there, the, the pulse on was, I go on Instagram, I go on TikTok, I go on these other places, and I see people my age or younger than me. I see Nina Mohanty getting 30 under 30, and it drives me crazy. No, but this is like the regular consumer version of- It drives me crazy too. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. This is the- and. Uh, just joking. Of course, Nina is uh, tremendously qualified for this honor. But like you see these like status things, right, that other people have. And on Instagram or on TikTok, like to, to give you an example that's been making me lose my mind actually recently, there was a an article that was describing how younger consumers today are choosing not to save for a down payment for a house, but are in fact now trying to save up for a Birkin bag. And so they will, and I didn't even really know what a Birkin bag was until I read this, but they're they're saving up for these luxury handbags that are $20,000, $30,000 instead of saving up for a down payment for a house. And when I saw that, like, I think my brain melted, but it did sort of fit into this same category of unsolved problem, which is social media has really enabled us to compare our status to each other, right? And you know, as we know from Instagram very well, it's really always a reflection of the best, most sort of luxury parts of your life, but not all of the other parts of your life that people could like relate to and that are the things we're all sort of ashamed of. So you show like this really great meal that I had or this really great like luxury experience that I had. And what it does is it drives up this sense of like status anxiety that we all have kind of competing with each other. And I 
I saw this other stat that came out recently. This was a survey that was in the Wall Street Journal of consumers asking them which values are really important to you. Do you consider very important? And they compared the survey of consumers in 2023 to when they've asked this question over the years going all the way back to 1998. And they asked about things like patriotism, having children, being involved in your community, religion, and they asked about money. And you might be surprised to hear this, but all of those values have become less important in the lives of consumers in the U.S., except for one, which was money. Money is the only one that's gone up. The others all universally went down since 1998. And I think, again, it fits into this sort of classification of this problem, which is we're all chasing after money, and we're all chasing after the sort of luxury lifestyle that we see others living. And according to the survey that I did a few years ago, it's making everybody miserable, and they have no idea what to do. And the core thing that they're asking for, and that I don't really think there's a lot of fintech apps or banking apps that are designed to solve this is, well, help me develop a healthier relationship between money and a happiness. That's what they want. And so Nina, like this seems like an unsolved problem area to me. And I struggle to sort of think about where are we getting traction on solving this problem? I love this. I think it's so interesting, isn't it? How every generation, I think, has their own version of keeping up with the Joneses. We're all keeping up with the Joneses. That's the expression. Yeah. Yeah. And I immediately actually started to think of an article that I read uh-huh. ages ago in foreign policy because I'm a nerd like that. And that's <laughs> where I actually started. I started my career back in the day. So this is like probably four years ago uh-huh. in the foreign policy magazine. And there is a new term that is used amongst young South Koreans. So at the time, I guess, millennials, called, I'm probably butchering it. If someone actually speaks Korean, please like DM me and tell me how to say it. Shibal Byung, which loosely translated is a fuck it expense. So like, a, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And the whole idea is this generation feels a certain amount of despair about not being able to afford a house, of not being able to keep up with the Joneses. So they just kind of say, screw it. I'm just going to spend the money anyway. And I think that's what's very much resonated with me in what you were saying about, you know, young people saving up for a Birkin bag. I mean, I, like you, did not know what a Birkin bag was <laughs> until like years ago. And then right. I was like, I can't afford that. I'm never going to be able to. Afford this is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I also, especially as a woman, you know, being on Instagram, being on TikTok is such a dangerous thing because you're just constantly being targeted by things, by them now, you need them, this is yeah. what you need. And even from your friends, as you said. Totally. And I often think about this where it's like, how are you sitting business class from like, you know, New York to Singapore every few months? Like, how is that happening? How, how are you paying for this? And it makes you feel bad, right? Like, if they're doing that, I must not be on track financially. I must not be like, I guess I'm not happy. Right. Because like if I see them doing it and I don't think they I mean, they didn't inherit a bunch of money like they're they should be in the same general category as me, but they're able to do this thing. And what you're not seeing, of course, is I remember this vividly when I was a kid. I had a friend who he always had the funnest toys, right? Like they like his family had like ATVs and like a jet ski that they would take out to the lake and they had all this great stuff. And I was always just like I remember talking to my parents complaining, probably being like, 
why do they have all this? Like, this doesn't, like, are we poor? Like, I don't understand, like, what's happening. Of course, we weren't. And it didn't click in my head until I went over to their house to hang out and they, they were living in a trailer, right? And, and nothing wrong with that, but like they had clearly prioritized, you know, expensive toys over, you know, having like a, a nicer house to live in. And I it was such an eye-opening experience for me as a kid, but like that's pre-Instagram, right? So that's a analog version of an experience that we're now having on steroids every day when we log into social media. Absolutely. And I similarly... I grew up in a really wealthy town in the Silicon Valley. You know, when people turned 16, they got, you know, a Mercedes, a, sure. a Beamer, whatever. Yeah. I got my parents a Volvo station wagon, who I dubbed Kermie, and <laughs> it was older than I was. Yeah, yeah. And I, it was a tank. But I, again, never understood why aren't we going to Disneyland every I mean, sure. these are such first world problems. Why aren't we going to Disneyland, you know, every summer? Why aren't we going to Europe every, you know, every other month, whatever? Right. And my parents actually sat me down and they're like, you are going to be able to go to university because we've been putting money aside for you. So you don't get to go. I mean, we could go to Disneyland right. every summer if you want. But actually, would you rather us be able to pay for you to go to school? And in our family, there's just always been such an emphasis on learning. And so that was a quick, you know... I think from an early age, they instilled that. Reality check, yeah. Yeah, but even with that, I still feel that, in, not an imposter syndrome, that why am I not having these things? How do I get these things? Totally. And it's actually very interesting. I was just speaking to Vimpe, who is the co-founder of Wealth8 here in the UK, which is an investment platform very much focused on black communities. Yeah. And she and I were chatting about how in many communities of color, but she was saying definitely for black communities. And I've noticed it with South Asian communities as well. Uh There is this, you buy, 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 buy. You want, you know, brand name things. And we were talking about how, you know, the amount of money that is being put into research on consumer behavior or buying psychology of black communities from luxury brands, from, you know, Ciroc, from uh, Nike, from whatever... Imagine how much better off we'd all be if Fidelity, if, you know, they went and just, or Hargreaves Lansdowne wrote a giant report and spent that much money researching how do we actually get black communities to invest their money. And she was saying, you know, well, I think it's just us in the black community. I said, no, 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 like it's everyone. Yeah. But it is very hard to know because effectively what we're asking for is a benchmark, right? Like, am I okay? Am I I don't own a house yet, you know, and I'm freaking out. I'm turning 30 this year. I don't own a house. That is exactly it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, and that was, it's funny you mentioned benchmark because that's exactly what people asked for in this survey that we did, right? Was tell me how I'm doing relative to others, right? And it was really interesting because I think that to your point, like there are these sort of quiet, not sexy examples of what being wealthy actually looks like, right? Like home ownership is a funny one because owning a home, is terrible in a lot of ways, right? Like, I mean, I spend all of my extra time trying to keep my home pieced together and stop my kids from destroying it. But it's one of those sort of quiet elements of wealth that's not sexy. It's not something you can really brag about, right, on like Instagram or on TikTok. And because, to your point, it's a goal that's further away, right? And there are other things that we're not going to be able to solve for in fintech, like, you know, the just we're not building enough housing. Housing is not affordable enough. Like, there are some sort of macro challenges that amplify these things. But I also think that, Absolutely. you know, there is no fintech app 
that makes it sexy to save for a down payment for a house, right? There's just not. That doesn't really exist. And and I am, and this is where we can give out some flowers to different companies or different ideas that I have started to see pop up in the fintech space that I'm really excited about. You know, there are increasingly, like in the mortgage space, fintech companies that I've been running into that are saying, okay, we're not focused on trying to make the process of actually getting a mortgage any easier, right? Like that's been where all the innovation in mortgage has been. It's like, let's make the origination process faster. Let's make it digital. Let's, you know, digitize the title process, all of these things. Like it's all about that transaction, right? But I actually think one of the sort of underexplored areas of fintech within the mortgage space is, okay, well, what happens if someone goes to a, a lender or a mortgage broker and says, I want to buy a house and they go, yeah, you're not ready yet. Like you haven't saved up enough money for a down payment. You won't be able to afford anything, whatever. Come back to us in a couple of years. Is there any like thing to catch those consumers and go, hey, it's okay. This is what is true for most people. Here's an app that you can set up that allows you to start saving money for a down payment. And we're going to let you know as you go how that's going, what's going on with your credit score, how close you are to being able to buy a house, we're maybe going to offer you rewards. Like every time you pay your rent, for example, we're going to give you cash back that you can't get to go you know, spend at a luxury meal at a restaurant or go travel. This cash back is locked in an account that can only be redeemed when you buy a house. But every time you pay your rent, you are paying down towards that down payment that you're dreaming of, right? And like almost making it like making saving for your down payment for a house, making that like a status symbol and something that you can brag about. The infrastructure to do that doesn't really exist. And to me, that's like a really clear example of something that should exist. It's interesting because I think about here in the UK, you know, we're probably a step ahead when it came to the rental recognition um, in terms of building your credit, right? And that was very much, we actually, when I was at Bud and open banking platform, we took part in HM Treasury, had a challenge called the Rental Recognition Challenge. Mm. And the idea was, how do we use rental data to actually help people build their credit scores such that they can then go and get a mortgage one day? I think there's disparate pieces where, okay, let's do rental recognition. Credit Ladder is doing a really great job of that here in the UK. I know Isusu in the States is doing that right now. But then in the UK, and this is why I'm kind of like, it's frustrating you have an ISA allowance, right? Or sorry, the lifetime ISA, which is a government-structured investment vehicle where it's kind of like, if you put money into this, we are actually going to match you with, I think, is it 25% of that funding that you put in? We'll match that. And then it will be like more tax efficient in terms of capital gains once it comes out the other end, if you use it specifically to buy a house, right? Really? That's interesting. There's a lot of things wrong with it, but mm-hmm. I think it's been a really good first step in like for first time buyers. Yeah. You know, in I think the limit is like 400 grand, which in London doesn't really get you anything. So it's right. kind of not means tested or anything. Or sorry, not, not means tested. I mean location tested, I suppose. Yeah. Almost like what we are battling, we are battling the life, the glamour of a lifestyle. Yes. And what I struggle to, I think, get people to click in in understanding is, yes, you can buy a Birkin bag, but guess what? You can also own a house, which is actually like the more you pay down your mortgage, you're building equity. That's going towards your net worth. Right. That is, you know. That's wealth. Yeah. Wealth. 
Yeah. Like, okay, fine, your Birkin bag will be worth probably, I mean, all of the resale sites say like, oh, Birkin bags like keep their value over time. I'm sure. There was a quote. There was a quote in this article about a woman who's like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pass on a house to my kids, but I'll pass on my Birkin bag. And that's the same. And I was like, that is not the same. That is not at all the same. Like, no, 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 no. I mean, that's mad to me. I, I would much rather pass down a house, but I think I'm, what I'm struggling with is there's so many disparate pieces and I would love to see a fintech company kind of bring these things together. I think it was Monzo, well, just to circle back to the point about benchmarking. Yeah. I think it was Monzo. It might have been one of the open banking like PFM apps like Clio or Plum. But I think it was Monzo that was saying you are spending X percent more on coffees per week than people but it's also kind of that benchmarking where actually I do want to know, like, how am I doing compared to totally. my peers, right? Or the people, am I spending too much on The Economist and the FT subscriptions and doing <laughs> <laughs> You definitely are, Nina. You definitely are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I probably am. So if anyone wants to throw me a free one, please let me know. But yeah, I, I would really love to be able to have that tool. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of the, I would love Cash App to take this up, you know, and be like, you're doing great. totally, and based on our data, like, you know, like do a do a Zillow integration yeah. or something. Like, yeah, we see you've been scrolling through these houses because we all know that like stalking Zillow is a whole is a whole cultural icon of its own thing these days. Let's embed that. Like, we see that you've been looking at these houses. You would need a down payment of X amount. Let's get you started. Let's go. Let's buy you this dream house. I don't know what that product looks like or who's going to build it, I'd love to see it done. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the last thing I'll layer on top of what you just said, I completely agree with that. But on the benchmarking front, the other thing that's challenging, but also an opportunity is, to your point, you want to know how you're doing relative to others. But there's also an element of subjectivity as it relates to money, right? And so one thing that drives me crazy with a lot of like personal financial management apps is it'll say, well, you're spending too much money on coffee. Or to give an example that's really relevant to my life, I really want to pay off my mortgage early. You know, so I put more money towards my mortgage than is actually due every month. And, you know, paying it off early will save me some money, right, in terms of interest that I pay over the course of the lifetime of the loan. But, you know, if you were doing a strict sort of financial calculation on that, what I've been told by PFM apps and by financial advisors is, well, actually, you'd be better taking that extra money and investing it in mutual funds because on average, that will return a better yield than the money that you would save by paying off your mortgage early. And so that's like the financial optimization part of that problem. But the part that doesn't take into consideration is it is emotionally important to me to own my own house outright, right? And I get an emotional satisfaction from that idea that is worth something that's not just about the amount of money that I end up with at the end of my life, right? And so the things that make us happy in terms of what we choose to spend our money on needs to be a layer that's like added on top of this. And that's something that you don't see in PFM apps, right? So like, I think I'd love to be able to see with the next generation of personal financial management, and I know that there are PFM apps that are working on this right now, is not only tell me how much money I'm spending and how that compares to others, but also check in with me, right? So after I spend money, do a check-in with me and help me benchmark for myself, because I'm not introspective this way, Hey, that thing that you spent money on, how happy did that make you? Like, were you happy with that purchase? Did it make you happy? Like, such a simple question, but like, did that make you happy? And what I'd love to be able to see over time is after you collect that data, then show me a graph that shows, okay, 
Here are the things you spent the most money on. Here's how that compares to peers or people who are similar to you. And here's how that compares to your own happiness levels. And so you should be able to circle things on that graph that go, you spent a ton of money on this. You spent way more on it than most people your age or in your income bracket do, but you were thrilled with this purchase. Great job. That was an awesome purchase. You're doing exactly what you should be doing. And by contrast, you might have another thing. That would be brilliant because I probably spend more on like theater tickets to plays and, you know, symphony orchestra and like jazz gigs and random art exhibits than I would argue most of the people my age. I spend a lot on that. Yeah, you're you're probably in like the top 1% of, yeah, your little bracket for that, right? I significantly bring down the average age in like almost <laughs> every one of these rooms. That's so funny. But it brings me so much joy and it makes me yes. so happy and fulfilled and like I'm living my life. Yes. And so if I could say, yeah, actually, Starling, because I bank with Starling, sure. you know, I did buy that. And I loved it. And like 10 out of 10 satisfaction would do again. Yes. Then at least we can like give a bit more weight to those things in terms of like my overall money happiness. Well, totally. Right. And then there'll be other things where it's like, I'm not spending that much on this. Right. It's totally in line with my peers or maybe even a little bit lower. But my app is giving me feedback. This makes you fucking miserable. You hate this. Like this never makes you happy. (laughs) You, You just sort of sneaks up on you or it's a bad habit or it's something that you don't even really think about cut it. Like you're at 5%, cut it down to zeros. Can you live without it? Like this doesn't make you happy, doesn't bring you any joy. So I do think there is a happiness component to this optimization problem that has not been solved by personal financial management that I'd love to see to see addressed and help sort of, again, create that better relationship between money and happiness. All right. We have time for one more. And Nina, I would love for you to talk about a problem that is maybe particularly close to your heart or one that you've been spending a lot of time on. So let's end with one more. Yeah. So the issue that I'm obsessed with currently is the intersection of migration and financial services. Is it? I think most people who know me know I'm obsessed with this, but it has only the obsession has only grown because it's become even more pressing that we address it. Sure. And my parents were immigrants to the U.S. I'm an immigrant to the U.K. I've always seen people moving. I've always been on the move. My first passport, it was like a month old. Oh, wow. I've also always seen money on the move. I mean, have very vivid memories of going to the Western Union in the dodgy place to send money back home to India. And so it's a very real, tangible, lived experience that I have. And so much so, it's so important to me that that is why I quit my well-paid job at Klarna to to start Bloom Money. Mm -hmm. I think the things that are currently top of mind for me, though, are that we are not anticipating the huge influx of migration that is going to be coming, especially to the Western world. I'm using that as kind of a lens, but actually even in, you know, emerging market countries, Uh there is also huge, you know, influxes of migrants that are going to come, whether they are, and I'm using migrant as a catch-all term to include everyone from an asylum seeker, a refugee, an economic immigrant, a student, and that word that I hate, expat as well. Yeah. It encompasses everyone. And it's even more pressing now because now we add into the mix climate refugees. And 
we add into the mix the fact that we, across many developed economies, have aging populations, we start to mix this very, we get this very potent cocktail of factors, Is it? which means that we need immigrants to come in to our economies to care for our elderly, to take out the rubbish, to do so many things that make our lives move forward. Totally. Um, at the same time, we are, I believe, not equipped to serve these populations that are coming into our societies, into these economies. And so this is multi-layered, but it has so much to do with the nature of who these people are and their cultural backgrounds. And so at Bloom, that's a lot of what we are thinking about to give myself, to give us some flowers. Yeah, please. Is oftentimes the Western approach to money, for example, is very binary. It is, well, either you have it or you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or what specifically is you have a relationship with the bank. The bank gives you your money, you pay your money in, and it gives you money if they deem that you are worthy of, of having a credit line or whatever. Yeah. And you have a relationship with your bank. Mm -hmm. Where I come from and my cultural background and for most of the world, yeah. that is not actually the case. And there is a lot more community and social cohesion that makes money work for people. Uh. There is a lot more empathy. There is underwriting by the crowd. Right. You know, like right. and and we see brilliant companies that have come out and, you know, Grameen, for example, right, has very much done this in Bangladesh and in other countries now. But that is one thing that is really hard to reconcile if you are new to a country where it's like, well, just go down the street to Barclays and open an account and then just start saving. Yeah. And you're like, okay, but what about all the other things that I need to do? Like I need to send money home or to give the example of my friend who's Somali, right? Her parents came to first the Netherlands and then to the UK as a refugee during the war. Yeah. And she's in a position now where, I mean, talking about layers, she sends money home to Somalia. She's also of weddable age. Uh, she is, a, <laughs> you know, thinking about her wedding, thinking about her dowry. And that is in some cultures still a thing that is done. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. She is thinking about the fact that she is a Muslim. And so in the UK, it can be very difficult to find Sharia compliant financial services and products. And yet she does want to own a house. And actually, in the end, she ended up getting just a plain mortgage from a high street bank because she had a chat with her imam and decided that actually, you know what, we're living in the West. I will settle for this. But that in one person, we've already had a whole bunch of things show up where it's like the average high street bank does not know how to cater to yeah. you. And I think if we zoom out, it's not just immigrants. My partner and I, he runs a fintech company too called Radish, very focused on communities and affinity groups. And actually, how can we better create financial services and products that are built for affinity groups in the context of their culture, in the context of their community? So whether that's LGBT plus or immigrant or gamer, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a digital low mm -hmm. pad, whatever. How do we make sure that we're building products that are actually useful to you? So that's something that I've been really obsessed about for years now. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think we've seen a few folks take stabs at it. And they tend to, sadly, mostly focus on those 
kind of mm, what we call Henry's, right? High earners, not sure, rich yet. Sure. BX. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really interested in is is the low to medium income folks because they are the ones that are sacrificing everything to give their children everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe their children might not get there, but the next generation will. So how do we accelerate that? And I once had a found another fintech founder friend say to me, if you can't find the quote perfect customer that a VC is going to want, because let's face it, VCs love the idea of serving expats because they They have have disposable income. But he said to me, if you can't find them, build them. And so that's what we're currently trying to do is like build that perfect customer, get them to the position where they are that Henry, where now they are quote a viable customer for a fintech company. That's amazing. I mean, I said, first of all, I do want to give you your flowers. I love that you've been focused on this problem. This is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is I know you care very deeply about this and it touches on everything that we talked about, right? I mean, I think that a core challenge that we have in fintech and financial services is we think about customers as they are today, not as they will be five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And financial services is a generational business, right? I mean, you are in it for the long term. You're trying to build a brand that will endure for a long time. And, you know, it goes back even to like the things we were talking about with credit and visibility. You're not a credit worthy customer today, but we want to help you get there. And we want to, by earning your trust and helping you take those first steps, earn a position in that future financial life. And it's so funny to me how we have this sort of view on the one hand, and I'll I'll pick on VCs for a minute here, where it's like, hey, we can, by being involved in this business, materially change the arc of this business's success, right? Like that's the whole idea of being a value-added investor is by having us on your cap table, we're not just giving you money, we are bending the arc of your odds of success in a positive direction. It's strange that we have that mentality between VCs and fintech companies, but we don't have that same mentality between fintech companies and banks and the customers that they serve, right? When banks and fintech companies work with consumers, they're just like, the only thing we care about is how much money you have in the bank account today. When in fact, banks and fintech companies have all of these powerful tools at their disposal for helping over time to bend the arc of someone's life in a more wealthy, productive direction. And that's not charity, right? That's not you asking for charity. That's just be patient and build a better customer over time. And then all of us benefit. We benefit in a macro sense, as you're talking about with the importance of immigration, migrants. We benefit in terms of like individuals being able to build wealth and hand that wealth down to their children and create a better life for people in the future. And selfishly, we get to benefit by banking those individuals and making money by doing that, right? So I think that you put your finger on something really profound, which is the sort of long-term view of how we need to build good businesses in the space and how we help our customers build wealth. It's so important. And and sadly, I think it's still missing a lot in fintech and in banking. Yeah. And I think for those, well, actually, I was going to say for those that couldn't see, but it's a podcast. So no one saw, but I was vigorously fist pumping as Alex. (laughs) Because it's something that I think we all need to look within and kind of say, if we looked for the perfect customer and, you know, like if I went, I'm currently in a WeWork, right? If I walked out and was like, okay, I want to, this is the parameters of my perfect customer. I'm probably not going to get that many people, but... Well, and the banks already have them, right? That's the other thing is that like the banks have them and they're not going to let them go, right? That's the other thing I think we've learned in fintech is the banks know who those people are. And I think the 
the, the second layer is just that context. And, you know, my partner and I talk about it all the time. They're currently working on a product with a surrogacy agency. Sure, yeah. And they're trying to figure out how can we better underwrite folks based on their community or affinity, right? And so in this particular case, it's looking at specifically gay men who want to get a surrogate. Yep. But we don't ever take into consideration the context of things, right? Where it's like, I'm not going to HSBC to get a personal loan because I want a personal loan. I'm going to HSBC because I want a new kitchen, right? Or or something else. Right. And there isn't context of the actual thing, what the purchase is or what that money will be used for. Yeah. And so I think, you know, there there needs to be, we've talked about empathy. We've talked about context now. We've talked about building your perfect customer all these things I think are scary to people because they're very frou-frou and there's no perfect way to do it because it will depend on the community that you're trying to serve or the people you're trying to serve because no two people are the same. Yes, we can create groups, but I think that's something that I personally want to see more of and what we are trying to do at Bloom is let's start putting numbers to this. Let's actually prove out that this is the right way to go about building it because at the end of the day, Financial inclusion for me, you know, we talk about like, oh, you know, bank accounts, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't care what I care about. Financial inclusion is a financial system in which we as people and businesses do not need to contort ourselves to fit the existing system and that the system contorts itself to fit us and our lifestyles. So that's what I'm working towards. And I, I invite you to join me. Oh, my God. That is amazing. Well, I hope that everyone takes that as a call to action to work on solving those kinds of problems. That's exactly what I wanted to cover in this podcast. And Nina, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your expertise with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'd love to have you back. Oh, thank you so much. We we got in a few swears, a few Category A swears. We got in Birkin bags. <laughs> we got in lots. We covered so much ground. We so covered a lot of ground. thank you so much for having me and really looking forward to seeing you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.